We could turn in the Word of God to Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon, chapter 2. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, we're going to read just the last few verses from verse 14. We'll see how we get on. If we have to cut the message short, I trust there'll be enough for us to meditate upon, but the voice is certainly not exactly what it needs to be today. I mean, a number of nights coughing, keeping myself awake at night, which I've never actually had before. It's a new experience for me. But we'll see. Trust the Lord will give much grace. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 14. Let's hear the word of God. <clears throat> o my dove, that art in the class of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs, let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies until the day break, and the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe, or a young heart, upon the mountains of Bether. Amen. Let's still our hearts for prayer. Let's all seek the Lord coming to the table. It's our main focus this morning, that we would come with eyes to see Christ and feast on Him. May He be pleased to condescend in an unusual way. Lord, we are glad that there is nothing too hard for Thee. We are glad that Thy Word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray today that what needs to be said will be said, simply so that we may come to this table in the frame of mind that would be honoring and glorifying to Thee. We pray their hearts would be kept in a condition of humility. Lord, while we may not physically be firing in all cylinders, we're thankful that it does not take this in order for souls to be blessed. We pray for the ministry of the Spirit of God. We pray for Him to condescend in mercy and in power. We pray that all of our hearts will be quickened in an unusual way to give attention to the Word. And may it please Thee to enliven us, to hear what the Lord Jesus is saying to us as He beckons us to sit at this table today. We pray we pray fervently that the Spirit of God will fall on us, the Holy Ghost will work upon us, and that each heart will not miss out on what the Lord Himself is saying to us today. So give the help that is needed, empower us, and move our hearts toward Christ to behold the cross, that we might even say, with Watts, where the whole realm of nature mine, where a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine demands my soul 
my life, my all. Bring us to that point, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every time we have come to communion in this year of 2019, beloved, we have turned our attention to the Song of Solomon, endeavoring to go through these verses in a fashion that would help us in our communion with Christ. My focus and desire is that we would not miss out on the whole intention of the communion table. That is that the Lord wants us to experience and enter into a felt sense of communion with himself. That it is not some mere head knowledge. It's not something simply that we know that I am in union with Christ and we we live on somewhat in a stoic fashion. But the Lord desires to woo us to himself. To have those experiences where we feel his love and know his condescension and experience afresh perhaps what we experienced at the first when we came to know Christ and we realized that our sins were forgiven and we were overcome by that sense of of the fact that we are accepted in the beloved. It's a wonderful thing to know that we are in Christ and to feel that sense of acceptance and to know that no matter what's going on, no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're facing, no matter what the accuser roars in our ears, that we're in Christ, that we belong to Him, that our sins, though they're many, are all washed away. And it is very easy for us to lose out in that sense of fellowship with Christ. Very easy for us to dip in and dip out of that sense of a felt experience and reality with the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. I was recently reading through First Kings and Second Kings and came to that passage in Second Kings in the life of Elisha where the prophet laments to Elisha that the axe head had fallen off. And I see in that something of our experience sometimes with the Lord. That that sense of really walking with God is not felt in the way that it once was. And, and we might say in terms of our walk with the Lord that, that the axe head has fallen off. And the question comes from Elisha, of course, where fell it? Where fell it? Where have you lost out? What has happened? I maybe mentioned this before, but there was a dear old lady, she's almost 100 years old, member of the church in Calgary, and sometimes you go to visit her and she would lament over this sense of this distance that was that she felt between her and the Lord as she was in that home under continual care. And she would say, Who moved? Who moved? And of course she was asking herself that, knowing that the Lord had no intention in moving away from her. That he had no desire to create distance between himself and herself. So causing the question to come back to her own heart. Who moved? I I must have, have moved. Well, there are times, of course, certain experiences where the Lord does distance himself from his people for certain reasons. But generally the case is that when there's distance put between us and the Lord, it is because of our own sin and our own negligence in the matters of grace. So we ask the question this morning, if we are coming to the table of the Lord, not in the place where we need to be, where fell it? Where have I dropped the ball? Where have I lost out with the Lord? What sin have I permitted? Or or at what point have I stopped enjoying fellowship with the Lord by neglecting His Word and neglecting prayer or neglecting other matters that relate to our fellowship with Him? Last month, when we looked at verses 8 through verse 13, we saw much encouragement. I think our souls were very much 
encouraged by the language of the text. But in verse 10, you will note how she is recording what her beloved said. My beloved spake and said unto me, and she is rehearsing this, rehearsing the language where he encouraged her, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. And when you come to verses 14 and verses 15, he is still speaking. He is still addressing her, calling her, and communicating to her language that is designed to woo her after himself. And so this morning we're considering these verses, the remainder of chapter 2, under the heading, Maintaining Fellowship with Christ. Maintaining Fellowship with Christ. And there's a number of things I want you to see here. First of all, there is a call in verse 14. A call. Look at the language of verse 14. O my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs. We'll get to that in just a moment. But then he says, Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. For, thy, for sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. The heart of the address here in verse 14 is, begins with the word let. Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. And as we look at this, I, I want you to be paying attention to the text, beloved. Have your Bibles open and pay attention to the language and see the Lord Himself as he speaks to your heart words of this nature, where he is saying, let me hear thy voice. I want to see your countenance. I want to hear your voice. This is the Lord addressing his church. The groom calls the bride into fellowship. Christ would say to his people, let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. This is my will for you. I want to see your face. I want to hear from you. Now we may stop and ask the question, how? How can it be that we, with all of our sin as we've already, already acknowledged this morning, how can we be brought into the presence of the Lord? We should be asking that question. You'll remember Peter, whenever he was struck by that miracle of the Lord in Luke chapter 5, where he has toiled all the night and caught nothing. And then the Lord says, you know, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. And he said, he tells them what's happened. He said, nevertheless, at thy word. And away he goes. And they let down their nets and they pull in these, this massive draft of fishes. And, and he is stunned, utterly stunned. Everyone's astonished. And on that occasion, Peter cries out, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me. Peter was overwhelmed with such a sense of the power and the authority and the majesty of the person who was in his presence that his sense was, I have no right whatsoever to be in the presence of this one. There's a huge distance. We're going to see this tonight, God willing, in the language of John the Baptist as well, where he talks about there cometh one mightier than I. And we're going to see how he elevates again the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter did the same thing. He saw it on that occasion that he is not worthy. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And that should be our default position, beloved. Our thinking should be, I have no right to hear language like this. Look at it. Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. There should be no sense in which we think that that is normal. To think to ourselves, yes, that I can understand why Jesus would want to see me and hear from me. 
No, no, this is the king of glory that we read of. And we should marvel, we should be utterly stunned at the condescension of the Son of God to come and exhibit language like this. Let me hear thy voice. Let me see thy countenance. Now that's what he's communicating today at this table. He wants to see us. He wants to hear from us. He is calling us into communion. He wants us to be there in his presence. And we should be stunned by that. Now, if you grow up in the church, and many of our young people here, you've grown up in the church, and you're at a condition and a stage where perhaps you think to yourself that this is, this is just the thing you do. You come to church on Sunday, you go through all of this, and there's communion every month, and, and it's just something you do. And you've professed faith, and you're going to participate in the table. But I want you to just strip back all the privileges you've had, and all the blessings you've enjoyed, and all of that that you've just been immersed in, in the blessings that have become completely normal to you. And strip them away. Listen to me. Strip them all away and realize, I have no right to any one of these blessings. There's nothing in me by nature that would call the Lord Jesus Christ to condescend in such a way that He would beckon me, that He might see my countenance and hear my voice. Nothing. I have no right to any of this. The privilege of being here under the sound of God's Word, being with the Lord's people in this ministry and enjoying the fellowship of the Lord's people is a marvelous condescension of grace. Now you might not think it, but it is. So we begin trying to answer the question, how is it that this can be? You remember what Cain said to God on that occasion whenever Cain and Abel came to worship? And they had a place of worship. I believe Adam had set up a place of worship for the family because the word that's used, the verb is they brought their offerings. So if they're bringing them, they're bringing them somewhere. So they were somewhere set up for worship, like we have here. Probably didn't look like this, but they had a place for worship. And they brought their offerings to that place of worship. And they came to worship the Lord. And you know what happened. How Abel's was accepted and Cain's was rejected. And on that occasion, in Genesis 4, verses 13 and 14, we read these words, Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. From thy face shall I be hid. I have no right into the presence of God. I have no acceptance before the presence of God. I'm going to be, it's going to be a, an alien presence for me from now on. Cain understood that. God's rejection of his offering and ultimately God's rejection of Cain because he would not repent and would not come upon the grounds of the gospel because of his felt sense of his own worth. And he wouldn't acknowledge that the only approach to God is by the blood. And he refused to accept it but he understood the consequence. From thy face shall I be hid. It is an awful judgment. But it is a natural judgment for sinners to know that they should be hid from the face of God. If you're not a child of God, if you're not born of the Spirit, 
you are as Cain was. You may come to this table and you will not see the face of Christ. You will not. We will call you, as we already have, but we will call you not to participate if you do not know the Lord, if you're not in fellowship with Christ. And yet, the elements may be passed. It happens all the time. The elements are passed around and people participate. They take the bread, they take the cup. I don't know why. They, they, they take it because, well, they think they're fine or they take it because they're afraid that someone might look and think, oh, they're not believers. I always thought they're believers and so they do it because of peer pressure or those around them. I don't know the motivation. I'm sure there's a plethora of reasons that are given. But deep down in your heart, you know nothing of Christ. Nothing of Christ. You've never been born again. And you will sit and you will take the bread and you'll take the cup and you will not see the face of Christ. You won't see it because you won't be meditating there. Instead you're thinking, I'm going to take this, I know I shouldn't, but and you're thinking about that. Or you're thinking about the fact that I, literally, I have no idea what's going through your head, but I'm quite sure of this. You will not see the face of Christ. And that's fundamental. You're not walking with Him. You have no fellowship with Him. Who are you trying to fool? Taking the bread and taking the cup. The Lord beckons His people to come to Him if we are not His if we are not His people walking with Him and enjoying fellowship with Him, we will not see His face. We will be His kin. From thy face shall I be hid. And on the flip side, for those that are in Christ, this is, this is the call. Let, let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. This is what Jacob enjoyed. Again, the rascal that he was, yet he was to enjoy the grace of God and salvation. The Lord stepped into his life, saved him, washed away his sins. And when they met with the angel of the Lord and wrestled with him until the breaking of the day in Genesis 32, we read in verse 30, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face. And my life is preserved. And you can see again, even his default was this sense that if I ever see God... First, I have no right to see God, no right whatsoever to see God, and if I should see God, I should die. This is Jacob's understanding, is it not? I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. If I should ever see God, I should die. But his life is preserved. He sees God face to face, and, and why? Why is that? Why did he see God? Why was his life preserved? The only reason is the heart of the gospel itself. The mediatorial work of the Son of God. There you have, in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ, you have you have the divine and you have the human, humanity coming together for one purpose, and one purpose only. To mediate between two parties that have no foundation for fellowship. But that foundation is created by the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that we, as sinful as the next person, may have this call let me see thy countenance. 
Let me hear thy voice. It is in Christ we see God. And so when he beckons us to see himself and for us to look upon him, that he may behold us, it is so that we see the glories of his person and worship. But he wants to, for us to bask in his presence, to be in his presence, and for us to speak to him. It's a wonderful condescension. Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. And she receives this call, and if you look at the verse, there's a number of things that we may see about it. She receives this call because, first of all, her protection. The protection is given in language of the clefts of the rock. Oh, my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock. The clefts of the rock. The cleft of the rock means a place of refuge, a place of hiding. It's a place where we run into so that we can be preserved from some danger. And language of refuge is found throughout the Psalms particularly and various parts of the Word of God. You can think of Psalm 18, for example, where the psalmist begins, The Lord is my rock and my fortress. And he goes on and he speaks of other descriptions of where he hides and, and the strength that he has as he, as he runs into the Lord for safety. And this is what the Lord's people do. We run to the Lord for safety. And this is where we are, therefore. As he addresses us, let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice. The only reason we're hearing this language, look at the text, the only reason we're hearing that language, let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice, is because you're in the clefts of the rock. You're already in the place of refuge. You're already hiding in that place where he communicates with those that are hiding in that place. And it's a wonderful imagery of, of where we are as the people of God. It's communicating to us where we stand. And as we stand there, the Lord communicates with us. Now, where are we? Well, what's the rock? The rock, if we take it as Scripture reveals it to us, is Christ. It's Christ himself. He communicates to those in union with himself. Look at the text. He communicates to them. There they are in the clefts of the rock, hiding in himself. They're running from their sin. They're running from refuge into the Son of God. They're running from all the evils of the world. They're running from all the dangers. They're running from everything into Christ. From every stormy wind that blows, there's a place found beneath the mercy seat for the people of God. We run into the cleft of the rock. This imagery is brought out also in the life of Moses in Exodus chapter 33, where the Lord, he wants the Lord to show him his glory. And in verse 22, we read, It shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. I'm going to hide you in a place of refuge. I'm going to shelter you, so that as my glory passes by, you'll be able to sense something of it and be preserved. Now again, what, what is the imagery there, beloved? Is, is this some special rock that could somehow shelter man from the glory of God? 
and the fact that he should be consumed by that glory? No, it's imagery that's designed for us to see the effect of the person of Jesus Christ. You run into the rock of Christ, you hide in him, and you're able to see something of the glory of God and live. But more than that, not just seeing the glory of God, but actually being in fellowship with God. And that is the point of the text. As we are in the class of the rock, let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice. You're in there for the purpose of fellowship. The Lord's essentially saying to his church, now you've run into me, you're hiding in me. This is what happened when you, when you came to Christ, beloved, when you were saved, when you turned from your sins, when you accepted Christ, when you ran into him, when you recognized your need for the Son of God and you, you just ran as fast as you could get yourself to Christ to be saved. Now, now that you're in there, what is the purpose of being there? It is fellowship. You're there in the class of the rock, and the invitation is, let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice. You're not in there for no reason. You don't run to Christ just to avoid hell. You don't run to Christ just to make your parents happy. You don't run to Christ just to be accepted within a community that might further your employment or help you in some other practical fashion. You run to Christ because you're out of fellowship with God and when you get, once you get into Christ, you're, you're there in a place of fellowship, and that fellowship should be manifest. And Jesus says, let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice. Are you getting the picture? That she receives this call because of her protection. She hides in Christ. She's there in the cleft of the rock. But she receives this call because of her position as well. She's in the secret places of the stairs. The secret places of the stairs. Strange language, no doubt, but... Stairs speak of elevation and height. And for those that are in Christ, they're taken to a place of... They're elevated. They are. Read the book of Ephesians. Read in chapter 2. That we are seated together in heavenly places in Christ. In Christ. We, we, we dwell in a place that is heavenly. We dwell in a place that is otherworldly. We dwell in a place that has not been merited by our work. And so where we dwell is in Christ, in the secret places of the stairs. Again, that's in Christ too. Heavenly places in Christ. It's all Christ. There you are, in the class of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs, elevated to heavenly places in Christ, made kings and priests unto God. There you are. There you are. A lost, hell-deserving sinner. And this is your experience when you come to Christ. And it's not something that you have to wait for. It's not a matter of, well, when I'm a Christian, maybe five years or ten years, or if I live really well as a Christian for a period of time, then these truths will be true about me. Oh, I wish I was like that Christian. There's a Christian I can see. They, they, they definitely are up there in the secret places of the stairs, and uh, they have a right to see the countenance of the Lord and, and be there and for Him to see them and hear his, their voice. No, no, no. This happens from the moment of conversion. The moment you're saved. This is true of you. I think it's a marvel. Remember what the Lord said of Jerusalem because of their rejection of Him? 
They give warning that the days would come when they would cry out for the rocks to fall on them. As sinners in the hands of an angry God, the only thing rocks should do is crush us and destroy us. But because Christ has come in to aid His people, to save them, to forgive them, to wash away all their sins and impute to them His righteousness, now we are in the cleft of the rock. We're hidden in the rock. We're elevated to secret places of the stairs that we may see the countenance of Christ and He may see our countenance and He may hear our voice as well as us hearing His voice, no doubt, as well. This is union with Christ. This is what it is to be joined to Him. Now you read through the epistles of Paul, particularly you will see his emphasis on our union with Christ. And he will speak in very definitive language that if you're a believer, you died in Christ. You died in Christ. In other words, You were in union with Christ when He was dying on the cross. And you were equally in union with Christ when He rose again from the dead. So that the merit of His work becomes yours. You don't have to fear the judgment of God. You don't have to wonder, as a child of God, should I be at this table? No, if you're in fellowship with the Lord, if you're if you're not running from Him and living in in overt sin and rebellion, if there aren't issues between you and another brother, then you come here and you enjoy this sweet fellowship. Look at what the Lord has done for you, beloved. You ask, how am I in the cleft of the rock? How am I in the secret places of the stairs? How am I there? Christ. All Jesus Christ. From beginning to end. No merit of ourselves. See, Christ communes with His people on the basis of His own merit. You sang that hymn about the mercy seat. Look, you're, you're not going to go to heaven, at least my opinion, for what it's worth, and there be an actual physical altar there, as it were, where there's a mercy seat and all of that going on. Christ is the mercy seat. Christ is the mercy seat. It is His blood that is there before the Father. It's His wounds that speak on our behalf. And as we fellowship here, as we shall there, it is all on the basis of His work. And it's all because of what He has done from beginning to end. And so this call, which again should amaze us, let me see thy countenance, then put your own name there, beloved. I want to see your, your face. I want to hear your voice. I wish Christians would get this in the public prayer meeting. I don't know whether it's right or not, but sometimes I wonder whether some Christians feel like they have no right to pray. That is a place for other people to pray. They're there and they're praying along with other people, but they never actually audibly pray. And I wonder, do they feel that they can't? Do they feel that they're not 
permitted? Do they feel that they're not allowed? Or, or what is it that holds them back? I'm not saying that every person can pray every week. Not at all. But is there ever a thought where you begin to ask your, say to yourself, like, I, I couldn't pray, or I have no right. That, that is utter nonsense. Every single child of God, every last one, this is the glory of the gospel, the glory of the doctrine of justification, is that you are justified, as justified as any other believer that ever has lived or ever will live. The grounds of your communion with Christ are equal to the grounds of any other believer that has come before God. And so he says to you, like he says to them, let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice. Don't be hiding away. So she receives this call because of protection, the clefts of the rock, her position in the secret places of the stairs, and because of her purity. Oh my dove, that's how she's addressed. You see that? Oh my dove. The Bible relates a sense of purity to, or attributes a sense of purity to doves. They are one of the only birds that are allowed in the sacrificial system, showing something of their cleanness. And You also know that the Holy Spirit came upon the Lord Jesus Christ in the form of a dove at his baptism. So there's a sense of purity about them, and even through the the history of Noah as well, we see something of their purity. And so the Christian, as we've already considered before, they are to have these pure qualities, a sense of purity like the dove. Now, this purity is to be manifested in different ways. Purity first in relation to the world. She is in the world, isn't she? Can't help it. The church is in the world. But we are to have these dove-like qualities in relation to the world. And so we are to maintain a sense of purity even though everything around us is impure. Now that's a great difficulty. That's a challenge. In fact, it's a challenge that only the gospel can address. Truly, in its real sense. Because while in the past there have been efforts to to promote monasticism because the the idea was as we cut ourselves off from the world, then we will will cut out all the the uncleanness from the world and then we'll, we'll be kept pure and holy. And of course it didn't work that way. The impurity within the heart was sufficient to make it corrupt. And that corruption wasn't long in manifesting itself behind those walls. But the child of God is to live in this world and not be of the world and and show forth these dove-like qualities in all of their purity because this is what the Lord would have for us. He calls us a dove. Oh, my dove, my dove, you're my dove. You belong to me. You're bought with a price. The precious blood of Christ. You don't belong to yourself. Your body and your spirits are God's. You belong to Him. Body and spirit. Everything you are belongs to the Lord. And He says, I want you to be like a dove. (laughs) Like a dove. So as we live in this world, we are to, 1 John 2.15, love not the world, Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Not to love the world. Oh, what is the world? <laughs> I always get a little bit Jewish when someone asks the question, what, what the world is? 
What is the world? What, what, are you looking for a way of escape for something here? Well, why are you asking what the world is? Usually when the question is asked about what is the world, often at least, it is with a desire, so it is, is, it's with the intention of removing responsibility to holiness. That's usually the motivation. Now you know your own heart. You can say, well that may apply to some, not to me. But often that's the case. As soon as you put a question, what's the world? It is with the intent to remove a sense of responsibility. It is with a desire to be as close to the world and like the world without actually being on the broad road that leads to destruction that the world is on. And so you you want to have all the benefits of the world, the aspects of the world, how the world lives. You want all of that. You want to imbibe its principles, its activities, its philosophies. You want to imbibe it all and still be on the way to heaven. Very dangerous approach. Let me put it as James puts it. First in chapter 1, verse 27 of the book of James. He says, pure religion and undefiled is to keep there's another aspect to it, of course, visiting the fatherless and the widows. But keeping yourself unspotted from the world. Keeping yourself unspotted from the world. Unspotted from the world. In other words, the world can spot you. It can mar you. It can get little bits of it onto you. And the purity of the Christian religion the desire for a genuine walk with God that is only possible because of Christ is to actually keep myself unspotted from the world, untainted from the world. You know what grieves me? I know that more and more we have permitted certain things and made things permissible and intolerable in the Christian church. And we allow things to come into our lives and we think we have a control on them because they don't lead into immediate sin. So you can watch a program. I mean, there are Christians today who watch a program and I've never seen one, even a clip, I have no idea, I've never seen a thing just to make sure that is clear. A program called Game of Thrones. And I looked up Wikipedia to try and figure out what is this thing that everyone's talking about. And part of the reason also is because it, it made part of where we grew up, Melanie and I, very near to where we grew up, it became very famous because there was a scene there, and uh, an area there that is uh, very familiar to us, uh, was used in one of their programs and became very famous because of this. So what is this? I, I read the, the Wikipedia on, and it talked about how it's pushing the boundaries. And I mean, this is secular 
uh, journalists, ungodly journalists, talking about how the program is pushing, pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable on television. And I can't quite believe what I'm reading. I'm, but I know that there are professing believers watch this. They actually watch it. And, and they say, it's, it's, they, they excuse it. You may manage to watch those things and it will not have a direct, very evident influence upon your life. What I'm saying is you may watch it and you, it's not, say, a tragedy or something happens in your life and you can't, can't draw a straight line from you began to watch this and this happened. That may not be the case. The devil's far more clever than that. But when you start to watch the world and all it's spewing out of the world and the filth, and I mean in everywhere, whether it's in media and every, not just programming, everywhere, the media at every level, it's just like the dripping of water continually on a rock. I mean, you can sit there and try to watch and see the change in that rock. You'll sit there a long time before you'll see it. But come back in 20 years. The point is, by the continual dripping of a worldly philosophy, an ungodly presupposition, a, a sense of militance even against Christ, and you're imbibing it more and more. You can't imbibe that. You can't retain that. You can't take that in without something being driven out. And so you have today people who were grounded in the Word of God, still profess to be believers, but they look nothing like, and act nothing like, and speak nothing like, and desire nothing like what Christians in the past were interested in. unspotted from the world. I should be very suspicious of everything generated by the world system. Very suspicious. I should be suspicious of everything that Disney puts out. Wondering, <laughs> what influence is it going to have on my children? Will it have? Well, it's just a little fun. And I'll grant you, perhaps some one movie one, watched once will not have a detrimental effect. But most children, when you bring those DVDs in or you start streaming them all, they will watch them till they know every word off by heart. Every word. I know it because I grew up in such a home. My sister and I could go through entire Disney movies and we could describe certain characters. You be this character and I'll be that character and you could mime off every, every word of the entire 90 minutes or whatever length of time it is and you knew exactly what are you doing but you're imbibing all the philosophy everything that is not founded in scripture so kids I say to you when mom and dad say no they may not always have the greatest reason why they may not answer your curiosity as to why am I not allowed to do this or go here or whatever and they may not be able to give you an answer, but they're suspicious of the world. And they're caring for your soul. 
Oh, I know I sound like I. You're back about 50 or 100 years. But I read the text. You're to keep yourself unspotted from the world. Are you doing it? Am I doing it? And James goes on to say in James 4.4, Know ye not that friendship of the world is enemy with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Yes. I need to be very careful. I need to be like a dove. Purity also in relation to not only the world, but our witness. Our witness because Matthew 10, 16 says, Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Harmless. In other words, my life is to be such that it doesn't bring harm to others and harm especially to the cause of Christ. Isn't it amazing how unbelievers can have lots of excuses that relate to how other believers live as to why they don't believe? Be very careful how you conduct yourself. Every post you put up on social media is reflecting something not just of you and your opinion, but also the overarching testimony you claim in relation to being a Christian. And the world watches on and they see it and they say, that Christian said, that Christian believes, that Christian so on and so forth. And we need to be really careful. Christ, why, why, why? Let's get back to the motivation for it all. Is it because I'm saying it? Is that, is that, are you going to go away and say, he says, therefore we should do it or not do it. He said it so it doesn't matter. Or he said it so, hey, he's a voice of authority, we should do it. No. Get back to the text. Oh my dove, that art in the class of the rock, you're there in union with Christ in the secret places of the stairs. Elevate it. Elevate it. In heavenly places, not in the world. No, no, elevate it out of the world in Christ. Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. I want you to be in communion with me. I want to see your face. I want to hear your voice. I'm not interested in the world. Christ makes that plain. The world receiveth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him. You know him. There's a distinction between the church and the world. And Christ has no fellowship with the world. None. None whatsoever. And he doesn't miss it, you know. (laughs) He's not pining after it. He's not interested. He's interested in you. You, beloved. He's interested in you. So keenly interested in you. No divided attention. No divided heart. Not at all. Christ is not looking at the world thinking, Oh, oh, I, I I wish I had all of that. That's what Satan tried to offer him. Satan tried to offer it all to him. He wasn't interested. I have my sheep that the Father has given to me. That's for them. My whole goal is for them. My desire is after them. My whole intent is them. I want fellowship with them. Look at it. Let me see thy countenance. Do you hear Christ calling to you, child of God? You haven't been in the place of prayer. You haven't been worshipping him as you ought. There's a distance. The Lord's not seeing your face and he's not hearing your voice. 
and as a marvel, for sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. You see that? Sweet is thy voice. You imagine yourself. There you are. I don't know, your, your spouse, something many of you are married. And you imagine your spouse saying to you that maybe you've been at a distance for a while, something has taken you away, you haven't seen each other for a number of weeks. And you come on the phone, telephone, oh, sweet is thy voice. What? What that does to the heart. There they are, they're hearing all these other voices, but, but, but your voice, there's no voice like your voice. And all the other faces, but there's no face like your face. If I can say it reverently, Christ is not happy until all His people Every last one is speaking to him and is before him. He's not going to give up his work. He he will not quit gathering in the elect until every last one of his sheep are gathered in. Then, then, their countenances are all before him. All of them. All those for whom he shed his blood. They're all gathered in. And then is the true jubilation for the Lord Jesus. He wants to hear your voice. Yes, the church's voice. Yes, the church's face. But even on an individual basis. Are you not the church? Part of the church? Making up the church? A member of his body? Sweet is thy voice. And thy countenance is comely. We don't understand the love of God, do we? The love of God in Christ. I can look back over the past week. I can do it. You can do it. Let's just stop for a minute and just think of it. Over the past week, let's look back and realize we've been far from being the Christians that we're meant to be. There have been harsh words. Impatience. Whether in the home or on the roads with traffic. They're having evil thoughts, discontentment, outright anger, a lack of compassion, manipulation of others to get our way, avoidance of responsibility, idleness, laziness, greed, envy, Speaking of others behind closed doors in ways we would never speak to them to their face. This goes on all the time. And the Lord sees it all. And we come today in penitence. All those sins we put under the blood, all of them, we put under the blood. 
By faith we claim the promise. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Have them all washed away. And then the Lord can hear from us. And our voice is sweet. Sweet. And our countenance is comely. Lord is attracted. I'm amazed. What grace is this? What love is this? I will not deal with the rest of the verses. The Lord has said enough. I feel through this one text. Sufficient for us to leave it at verse 14. And see that at this table today, beloved, is this call. A call to a people who are in union with Christ. Only to them. Only to them. Get it, please. Do not be taking the bread and cup. Do not be participating in something that doesn't belong to you. Are you in union with Christ? Are you in fellowship with the Lord? Are you walking with Him? That's, it's all about those people. And if you're not in fellowship with Christ, don't participate. But right here, this morning, you could be saved. There's nothing to hold you back. Why would you put it off? Why would you say, another time, another place? No. There's no more glorious position than to have your sins washed away, to be rightly related to God through Christ, and to know, no matter what happens, I am right with Him. Even if it's aspirations after a good life, a wonderful life, a fruitful life, you should have come and heard the testimony the legacy left by our brother at the funeral yesterday, you should come. You should have listened to it and heard it for yourself. No regrets living for the Lord. A life that was lived well. A life that has left a legacy whereby hundreds and thousands of people, when you're, when the name, when the name, Dr. Gingery, goes through the mind, of thousands of people. They thank God. What do they think when your name goes through their mind? Just another person in this world living for self and for sin? Or will it be at your home calling hundreds, thousands, Let's realize that not many of us will have the breadth of ministry that he had. Will it be a true sense of thank God for that person, even in the small circle of people that God has put us in the midst of? The Christian life is the only life. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer.
Lord, we acknowledge today how we fall so far short. We are unworthy. We pray that thou wilt give us more and more grace to live in the spirit of genuine, heart-filled gratitude. That thou hast called us from nature's darkness into the glorious light of the gospel. And thou hast called us that we would keep ourselves unspotted from the world. That we might truly enjoy intimate fellowship with the Lord Jesus himself. Our hearts are so wicked, we know that there's nothing sweeter than fellowship with Christ. And yet still, day by day, we battle, we battle to truly prioritize our affections. Father in heaven, have mercy on us today. Give us the help that we need. Every last one of us. We pray that thou wilt be with us around this table. Renew fellowship with us. Revive our sense of thy presence. Deal with our sins. Enlighten our eyes to thy glory. And move in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a few verses of 232, hymn number 230.